<clears throat> okay. Welcome back, everyone online. Um, yeah, thank you for being here this morning. Welcome and good morning, Alethea, and to everyone else that's tuning in right now. Uh, thank you for being here. Here we are in week number five of our arc talking about disparity. Um, how it is that we should view the issue of disparity uh, as God's people and how it relates to our blessings. That's been the focus of the last four weeks. Here we are in week five. So just to quickly recap, um, as we do, as it's good to do, to sort of reflect on um, what we've already gone over and you know, keep it fresh in our minds. We started off in the first couple weeks taking a look at the early church's heart and attitude and response to this issue, and we looked to the very first believers in the second chapter of Acts and how it was when they provided for each other, how their response was when uh, disparity was president, or president, present. <laughs> uh, then the following week, we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as Paul was addressing the church there on how it is that they should be continuing in their ministry uh, and service to their fellow brothers elsewhere. It was a matter of their faithfulness to the ministry that they already started. So you might recall we talked about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, then in week 3, we went back to the prophetic book of Amos to get a glimpse into how it is that God views and how it is that God judges disparity when it's not dealt with appropriately and when it's ignored or used for any sort of self-exaltation. Uh, judgment was coming and did come on the people of Israel when they failed to reconcile this issue among themselves. They had, if you will, the term, a poor disparity conduct. Then, of course, last week was all about the ever-relevant social justice issues and movements we see taking place over the last few years, particularly uh, here in America, but really uh, worldwide. America has a, has a great and unfortunate influence on the rest of the world. Um, critical theory and intersectionality is what we were talking about. These things are false narratives that society wants us to pursue, that society demands that we uh, be in submission to. And remember, the key point of critical theory and of intersectionality is to break down everything and to ultimately isolate you. The comparison of oppressions, which is what intersectionality is, you're sharing oppressions, remember, crossroads, that's why they call it intersectionality. The comparison of oppressions only leads to more oppressions. It's an ironic philosophy and lifestyle. This way of living is hopeless and alone. The unity that Christ provides was our, you know, our, our concluding point last week. The unity that Christ provides uh, and the framework that God sets up is the only foundation strong enough to combat these things, to combat things like critical theory and intersectionality, to combat these toxic and fruitless teachings. We have a responsibility as disciples of Christ to provide people to provide the world a hopeful solution by the way it is that we live our own lives and the way it is that we reflect 
who God is and the love we show to one another and so on. And that was where we ended last week. So, quick recap. But here we are in week number five. So I have to be honest in saying that I sort of had this week earmarked for something different when I you know, started out my sermon month and sort of planning it, trying to figure out where I was going to be by now. I had it earmarked for something different uh, than I you know, have for you today. Recent events, as we've been making subtleties to in our, you know, just before our songs here and our prayers and stuff, recent events of the last week, the temperature of the last week, um, sort of had me thinking more about last week's sermon um, and how, <clears throat> how prescient it seemed to be. And that was not by my own design, I can assure you. I recognize it as a relevant issue, which is why I chose to talk about it, but maybe God must have seen things coming. I don't know. But I've been talking with people over the last couple of days about how um, on, uh, on point it seemed to be in terms of what we're going through this last week. Um, so with that, I want to speak more on a couple of points that I was... Um, you know, using last week. I want to, I wanna, you know, give it more time. I want to speak more on the significance of unity, which was my very brief point at the end of last week. You might recall I referenced um, Ephesians chapter 4. A very brief point, but I want to harp on that this week. So, in the last several days, obviously, if you've been paying attention, we've seen protests go uh, going on around us. Um, they are starting as, you know, mass gatherings uh, and people with signs and, and people with real emotions to utter violence and destruction and more bodily harm. Storefronts being vandalized, uh, cars being destroyed, news headquarters being stormed, police stations being lit on fire, uh, major cities around the country now instituting curfews to um, keep people safe from these types of things. Um, just last night, we had one here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we had a curfew, 8 to 6 a.m., in lieu of these things. Uh, and my wife this morning said that she could hear the, um, the, the product of those things. She's hearing loud bangs. We don't live far from downtown Portland, and so she's hearing these things. Racial injustice and or uh, racial mistreatment and oppression has reared its ugly head again in our um, society. And racial division is all that's in the news, if you are paying attention. Uh, it's, you can't get away from it. I took a screenshot earlier this week, and like the top ten headlines, eight of them were about the race thing going on in, in our country right now. That's all that you can see if you open up your news apps, if you're, you're reading whatever sources you're reading. You can't get away from it. Um, yeah, our, our, our country is divided and is screaming for answers to their problems. Uh, but like I said last week, outside of biblical worldview, outside of God, they're not going to find them. And they might as well be screaming at a wall. <clears throat> their narratives and their oppressions that they want to you know, propagate only fuel more and more oppressions. Again, that's the point of that way of living is to exalt one oppression over the other. 
more and more false narratives exist and no party is guilty you know, of, um, or no party is innocent in propagating them. So this week I want to go back to the book of Ephesians in order to underscore what is fundamentally important to understand when we wrestle with these things uh, that are going on, when we wrestle with these topics and emotions and when we wrestle with them personally and, when, and how we wrestle with them as a, as a body. So in the midst of all this noise and chaos, and then in the midst of all these um, topics of conversation about social justice and race and, and sex and identity and all the other freight cars, if you recall the you know, metaphor we were using yesterday, or not yesterday, last week, um, in reference to you know, intersectionality and critical theory, in the midst of all these different freight cars that you are being placed in and that you're choosing to place yourself in, at the end of the day, we have a responsibility to reconcile everything with Scripture. You might remember that, sola scriptura, the doctrine of, of using Scripture alone to shape everything about who you are. At the end of the day, what does God say about us? What does God, through the work of his Son, do for us? At the end of the day, is what God says sufficient enough for us? Or are we looking for more? Are we looking elsewhere? Are we looking to supplement him? Are we looking to supplement his word? And when we start talking about who we are in Christ, meaning our identity, our unity and our brotherhood and how we move and operate within those truths and within those relationships, do we believe in the power of Scripture alone to influence that. What's really concerning amongst the, you know, the culture and what society would have you believe and how it would have you, how it would influence you and ask that you, you know, cater to it is the new sort of, um, the prevailing idea of the new canon, as it, as it were, as it's, as it's used in some circles within Christianity. Canon being the, the, the um, truth or the law by which we, we, we judge everything else, uh, the genuine criteria with which we judge everything. This new canon that takes root in our culture and wants to influence its way into the church. Uh, again, in the last week, if you've been paying attention to any of the news, uh, and I would include Facebook on some level with that, um, you see jargon being used um, in reference to these different race things going on, like institutionalized blank, whatever it is, institutionalized racism. This week it's race-fueled, right? Uh, and next week it'll be sex and gender-fueled, and, and the following week um, it will be economic-fueled, um, and, and so on and so forth, repeating. The point is that what's, what it is now is, is, is going to be forgotten and then there'll be something else next week and it's in a repeating circle and there's jargon being used like institutionalized whatever it is. That's what the culture would have you believe about um, what's going on. Sin is now being uh, relegated to institution, to what man sets up. Sin is now institutional rather than it being in the heart of everyone, in the heart of all men, and tormenting all of creation. And this is another false narrative. We are reading things differently as a, 
as a society, as a people. This jargon doesn't paint an accurate picture of the problem, and so this jargon is never going to actually provide you an accurate solution to the problem. On top of that, and I alluded to this last week in talking about those things, intersectionality, is there's a new and growing canon um, in terms of how we respond to how it is that we should be dealing with these different issues. Last week I suggested to you that if you want to live by that philosophy, by that intersectional philosophy, you will eventually and inevitably come to a point where you just, you're not intersectional, intersectional enough. Uh, you, you are always going to find yourself at odds with someone who is oppressed, even if you share those different freight cars along the train. And in the words of Qui-Gon Jinn, because I've watched episode one recently with my son, there's always a bigger fish in that philosophy. Uh, so you're never going to find yourself in complete harmony with someone if you choose to live that way. <clears throat> and this new canon, this new list of works that is, it's, you know, it could be written, it can be spoken, it can be recorded in a YouTube, it can be sung, documented on any level, this new canon that says, on top of never being able to fully understand and share in my intersectionality, therefore you have no voice in the matter, on top of that, you haven't even done your homework or been influenced or been shaped by this work, that work, this person, this influencer, this song, this important movie for the times, this thing or that thing. You haven't, you haven't uh, um, exposed yourself to it, and so you really have nothing to say uh, on the matter, or you really have no significance, and, and you really can't relate to me. And this, of course, creeps its way into the church and how we as individuals um, process things. Scripture is no longer used as an authority, let alone the supreme authority, for how it is that we live our lives. Scripture is no longer the sufficient means to address any issue that man faces. It's no longer used that way. Now it's, or culture would have you think it's, you need to read, listen, watch, etc., 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 in order to inform your view of Scripture and of what the Bible says as it relates to unity or how we perceive disparity or injustice or anything. You need to read these things. You need to expose yourself to these things. And then if your, your Bible um, you know, jives with that, then cool. <clears throat> the use of Scripture as, as, as a tool and as a weapon is, is laughed at. And the person wielding that weapon is dismissed. And, and through that, we allow it to fail when we stop using it or when we are insecure about it, when we are inconsistent with it, when we don't understand fully what it has to say and the issues that it speaks to. And sociology, you know, the study of, of culture, basically, uh, has taken the driver's seat in our lives as people and in many of our lives as believers. And this is scary and wrong and dangerous. The very nature of sociology, if you don't know, is that you're studying something that's always changing. And so if you base your life on something that's always changing, then there's, there's no stability anywhere at any time. <clears throat> to have something that is ever-changing 
overriding or in authority and governing our theology is, is just bad news. And it, it makes us inefficient and uh, ineffectual and, and all these things as, as believers. And it makes what we do um, really hard, really hard, or impossible even. We need to believe and be fully convinced that the Bible alone is sufficient for us to judge all aspects and manners of, of our faith and of our living and of our righteousness. And that even means that Bible is the sufficient means for us as we are navigating and dealing with things that we're experiencing today, like this week, like last night, like, like you've seen in the news. Dealing with these things, uh, these volatile subjects of race and ethnicity. <clears throat> and that doesn't mean that we can't inform ourselves uh, through extra means or that we shouldn't seek to expose ourselves to and open our eyes to history, for example. Uh, and in fact, studying sociology, if you like that kind of thing, um, well, what's... what's uh, Ah, oh, never mind. I was thinking about sociology in comparison to another study, but uh, whatever. It doesn't mean you can't use those things. It, it's, in fact, it's a useful tool when we're, when we're processing and when we're discerning um, and understanding exactly when and where and why and how narratives, how worldview has been shaped and co-opted, how it's been taken over. Understanding sociology can be useful to that as long as it's in submission to the higher authority of Scripture. The Bible is all we need, though. The Bible is all we need, and we do not need to supplement it with something else, despite what culture would have you think. You do not need to supplement the Bible with something else. It is not lacking anything. It speaks to everything. Christ understands the nature of being a man, because he was one. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with man's sinful nature. The problem is not with the institution. The problem is with man. And the problem is not that we need to supplement with other sources or, it, or that we don't supplement with other sources. Is that we think, it's that we think we have to. But we don't. So, Ephesians 2. The truth in God's word in Ephesians 2 we're going to be reading this week, is that unity and reconciliation already exists. It's not something that we need to work toward or achieve. It's something that already exists. We don't have to demand equality or justice from other means. We don't have to cry systematic racism or systematic whatever injustice you want to input in that line. We don't need to be caught up in the emotions of what's going on, but only when we submit ourselves to the proper narrative are we going to find uh, the answers to that. Only through scripture, scripture will we see disparity fully driven out and unity fully realized. Again, it's, it already exists. It's already been achieved through Christ. And it's a reality that we can celebrate and should celebrate. And we should combat and have as our overriding um, feeling and emotion when we're going through this kind of difficult and um, just disgusting time. 
knowing this should come with a burning conviction for yourselves um, as believers if you really do feel caught up in the emotions of things. And I've seen people's Facebooks. I've seen people emoting on these issues that are going on. And I, I am asking myself, like, where, where, where their, what they know to be true falls in line with their emotions right now. Are they forgetting what they know to be true? Are they forgetting what Scripture has to say? Are they forgetting the power of who God is and what Christ did? Are they forgetting all that? Are they just getting swept up in the emotional current? I've seen things on Facebook that is concerning. It makes me ask the question. But it should come with a, a burning conviction when we, when we submit ourselves to what Scripture has to say. Being fully convinced of God's Word as the completely sufficient means to... Um, process us should process these things it should inspire us also to you know put it put it back out there so let's read ephesians 2 um let's just read all of it because it's a good chapter our focus is going to be um on like verses 11 to 18 maybe 11 to the end um but let's read all of it it's a short chapter and it's a good chapter our focus will be on uh verses 11 and onward but here we go ephesians chapter 2 once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Huh. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. So God can point to us, all, can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece, and he has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And this is where our focus will be starting now. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel and you did not know the covenant promise God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jew and Gentile into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations, and he made peace between Jew and Gentile by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. 
He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and the peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So again, verse 11, 12, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathen by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God has made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So as he does, Paul uses his techniques of repetition You'll see that in a lot of his writing, in order to drive home a certain point. And the parallel with the first chapter is that he says, bad news, but God. The parallel here in verse 11 is, in the second half of the chapter, is bad news, but Christ. So in order to appreciate the, the good news, pun intended, in order to appreciate the good news is you have to take a moment of perspective and a moment of appreciation for the bad news. It's an effective way of speaking, way of writing. You have to realize the depths of the bad news so you can fully realize the depths of what has been done, of the good news. And oftentimes it's easy for us, especially here in our cozy little country where we have all these freedoms and we take things for granted, uh, we, we, we forget, you know, how bad things could be. So that's, a, that's an American problem, I would say, um, particularly. It's useful to remind ourselves just how much worse things could be. And this is Paul's point of emphasis here in Ephesians. In order to recognize the magnitude of the reconciliation we have in Christ and together, we have to recognize the magnitude of the division that once existed between those two groups of people. And, you know, this is a controversial statement, but the division that God through Christ overcomes is more significant and meaningful than any sort of division we think we have, any sort of oppression we think we have when we're comparing um, groups of people. People don't like to hear that. But the division that God overcomes is more significant. Racial classifications, because that's, that's, a, that's a big box car, a freight car on that train. Racial classifications, if we're going to use this you know, topic since it's hot right now, uh, they're not real classifications. And what I mean by that, before people get angry online or whatever, is that racial classifications... Um, they're used, as, they're used as identifiers. Racial identifiers are not real identifiers. Race has become a nar another narrative shaped and taken over. It has become a primary means of identity. The problem with using race as an identifier is that it's, an, it's, it's as arbitrary as we want to make it. 
it's as important and exalted as we want to make it. Uh, a Stanford University professor on, uh, on race and ethnicity, uh, and, and in quoting Toni Morrison, who is a Nobel Prize winning African American who was like the voice of African American culture for decades, she just died last year at the end of the year, um, quoted her in saying, race and ethnicity are metaphorical terms. They're concepts that get used every day in order to understand uh, differences in the world. And the point is that anything we, we use as an identifier, as people, outside of a specific framework, will only drive that wedge further and further and further. It's an interesting irony that, you know, in order to, um, in order to highlight the oppression, you're also highlighting, like, your distinction and what makes you, you. Like, it's like, uh, it's like wanting both things at the same time. I don't know if that, if that makes sense the way I explained it, but there's an interesting irony there. there. The difference here in Ephesians ch chapter 2, as Paul points out, is the difference between Jew and Gentile was that it wasn't an identifier established by man. That's an identifier that God himself established. It wasn't arbitrary, but it was uh, significant because who of, from who it came from. And that means that if God can reconcile those two things who have real differences, God-ordained differences and distinctions, he can reconcile us. He can reconcile people who have arbitrary and artificial distinctions and identifiers between us. It's not just that Gentiles were... Uh, outsiders connected to some, you know, different ethnic group, or that Gentiles were separated by some, um, uh, what's it called, hegemony, like cultural oppressor, or, yeah, uh, authority, cultural authority. Um, it's not that there were systems that were oppressing them, or they didn't have this equality, or that equality, or experienced this injustice, or that injustice. Scripture says they were alienated from God and from Christ, and this was real and significant. Bigger than anything we can wrap our minds around. This was the way God identified people. His people versus everyone else. <clears throat> and so if you take your own like, personal relationship with him seriously, and I'm not doubting anyone when I say that, um, but if you do, you'll appreciate how real and significant and serious the thought of separation and alienation from God is. Not, you know, injustice from man to man. Separation and alienation from God. It's, not, it's, it's almost impossible to compare that to anything, so it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around it, okay? You lived in this world without God and without hope. That's what Ephesians says. When people choose to live and operate outside of that um, narrative, when they choose to live and operate outside of Christ, they're choosing a life of separation, of alienation, a life without God and a life without hope. <clears throat> but as I, as I you know, said earlier, there's, there's a but. Bad news, but. And when we hear you know, these buts in Scripture, <laughs> when we hear the buts in Scripture, we should perk up because it, it, it means something. It's significant for us. If it was just the bad news, wow, we would be depressed. But when we hear these things, when we, when we see these writings framed this way, we should perk up. But now you have been united with Christ. 
Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Scripture doesn't say that we are reconciled and united together when we read this work or that work or study this sociology or that sociology or, or listen to this important cultural music or watch this important cultural movie and so on, okay? By, by, by allowing this influencer to shape your ideologies and stuff. That's not what Scripture says. That's not how we should respond. We, don't, we aren't reconciled once we admit to our, our, our white guilt and spend an eternity trying to pay it back Okay? We, we shouldn't feel sorry for our ancestors treating these ancest- your ancestors wrong and so on and so forth. I was making these points last week. For taking, uh, we shouldn't take personal blame for all of man's sinful nature. You take personal accountability and responsibility for your own and you do something about it, but we aren't reconciled by, by all these different things that are thrown at you in... in uh, and by these people who are really loud about it. Uh, we don't cry out and publicly recognize the systematic whatever. You know, I saw someone on Facebook uh, earlier this week who said, like, anyone that doesn't, with what's going on right now with uh, the George Floyd thing and all that, everyone that doesn't speak publicly say something, like on their Facebook page, I think that they were alluding to. Anyone that's not saying something, like, like shame on you. Like everyone has a responsibility to say something or you are part of the problem if you, if like you don't publicly make a confession or take a personal whatever toward it. It's like, what is that? Like, what are you supposed to do with that? But that's, that's what people think. We aren't reconciled by being woke enough and by being in submission to that. Scripture says we are united through the blood of Christ. And that's it. He died to reconcile us to himself and to each other. And, you know, how dare we try to add anything onto this? How dare we think we need to supplement his work? Uh, His work on the cross is sufficient. Scripture alone is sufficient enough to eradicate these kinds of disparity we see going on. His work is sufficient enough to unify people if we choose to accept it, if we want it, if we allow it to have the power that it should. Uh, I I think it was in my cell group last week. You know, I I talk a lot about this, this guy, Jordan Peterson, this psychology professor and you know public speaker and you know scapegoat for the for the times that we're in because he speaks against this uh um politically correct you know world we live in and uh he speaks honestly and truthfully about it but um i watched a video of him recently that was the closest he ever got to um being vulnerable, vulnerable about his relationship with God, which I actually appreciated. Ultimately, it was you know sad and, and short-sighted on his part, but it was the most honest I've ever heard him be. And I've always said about this guy, Jordan Peterson, I agree with just about everything he has to say, but he always just walks up to the line of who God is and, and reconciling who he, who he knows God to be and what he knows to be true, but doesn't actually give God the glory in all of those things. And so ultimately... He's no, you know, he was no different than anyone else. Everything is arbitrary then. Everything is subjective. But I watched this video recently where 
he was vulnerable about, vulnerable about that sort of thing. And he basically said that he is, um, he's scared to publicly, you know, profess that kind of thing because he recognizes the, the sin in his own heart. And he's scared to uh, say something like, I follow God or I, I, I submit myself and my life to Christ because he recognizes that when you say something so audacious, it should have like miraculous transformative power in your life, which it should, right? Like it should, it should be a 180. And of course, that's a process that we all go through. But when you say that, it's not just something you say. You can't just say that. Otherwise, it has no meaning. Otherwise, it has no power. So when I say if we choose to accept it, if we want it, if we allow it to have the power, I think that that's what he's talking about. Like, we can't just say that. It has to mean something. If we're looking to, for answers to these problems that are, that are present and going on and are, are loud and in our face, we, we do not need to look further than what, what we have in front of us and what's already been given to us. We do not need to get wrapped up and swept away by that emotional current uh, that demands that you do, or else you're just part of the problem. Um, that doesn't give you, uh, this, this give you anywhere to go. At some point, you have to lean into what you know to be true, and not just that, you have to be vocal about it, and you have to be secure in it so that it has power in people's lives. Scripture says, the blood of Christ alone. Scripture alone. Anything else is futile, and that's why they keep banging their heads on a wall, demanding change, but not seeing it. And anything else is, is blasphemous because it can't, be, it can't be Christ alone, it can't be scripture alone, uh, but also this. Like, it has to be the supreme authority. It can't be supplemented. It, it doesn't need to be supplemented. So when we try to do that, we cheapen, we cheapen what it is. He says in verses 14 and onward, Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jew and Gentile into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations and he made peace between Jew and Gentile by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other is put to death. We become one when we allow Christ to speak into our lives. Um, yeah, he unites us into one new identity the only identity that we should be, um, we should be uh, recognizing or giving credit to. One of the most interesting, interesting things I came to realize when I began my personal relationship with God was, um, was how quickly my relationships changed um, and how my new relationships within a really, really short amount of time, time especially relative to my previous 18 years, you know, I was 18, how my relationships became immediately more connected, more united than any other relationship I had, and that includes my own family in a, lo in a lot of 
cases. You know, I have a lot of brothers and sisters and, and whatnot. But, and, you know, people that I would have called my best friend for, I don't know, probably had like the same best friend since I was in sixth grade or something. So whatever that is. How old are you in sixth grade? I don't know. <laughs> Twelve or thirty. Yeah, six years. Six years is a long time as a kid, right? That's, especially if we're going off 18, that's one-third of your life. People would have called my best friends. It quickly became clear, like, the level of relationship and the level of intimacy and the level of authenticity and what it was built on, what it was previously built on was nothing. It was nothing. And so it, it, didn't, it didn't have roots. And I've, you know, I'm in contact with some of those people today, and I'm glad for that, but they're not the same kind of relationship. And like I said, that includes your own family. <clears throat> Christ's blood provides that. It's not because, uh, it's not because of any other you know, reason. It's because of who Christ is when we allow it to have a transformative power in our life. It provides real unity and real reconciliation to people from every sphere of life. Some of you have heard me talk about if it wasn't for who I know I should be, who Christ is, eh, freaking fly, <laughs> who Christ is, I, I, in my previous life, if you will, I wouldn't have been hanging around some of you guys that are watching, <laughs> okay? Like, just because I wouldn't have, like, I wouldn't have found a reason to connect with you. Um, and it's just the truth. Like, it's just the truth. But now... I take joy in that growth and joy in those relationships who I would have previously deprived myself of because of Christ and because of the, the nature of what he provides. You know, there's a, there's a reason why at work I can talk to a guy and I can be in an authentic relationship with a guy uh, who is, you know, an illegal immigrant from Mexico, a former crystal meth addict, an alcoholic, and so on and so forth. And it's not because I can relate to that guy, like on an experiential level. Like, I can't, for those of you that are wondering. I can't relate to those things. I'm not from Mexico. I was not a former crystal meth addict. I was not any of those things. But it's because of who I'm supposed to be who I'm called to be. It's not of my own you know, merits. It's not because I'm a patient guy. I'm not, really. It's not because I'm a, a super sympathetic guy. I'm not, really. It's because of who I'm called to be that I can have an authentic relationship that doesn't give a crap about this guy's experience or whatever. You know, And that's beautiful. And I take joy in that. Even when that person doesn't share the same worldview as you. It's... It's a personal conviction to try to have that level of relationship because of Christ. He goes on, Paul goes on to say, he brought the good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Good example of the Trinity there in case you're wondering. Uh, there's, a, there's like a prevailing um, idea and you know ideology Within the, within the race um, genre of intersectionality, the race freight car. And there's a term used within, you know, like Christian apologetics and stuff called ethnic Gnosticism. And that basically means you can never be on our, our level because of this thing, because we know this, because we experience this, you can never be on our level. You need to read up on this if you want to have a sliver 
of what it is like to be me and my background and my history and so on and so forth. And the reason I bring that up is because there's a, there's a real parallel there between that kind of thinking and like the Judaizers who want to put in place all these things if they want to have a sliver of what it means to be God's people. They want to institute these laws. They want to institute circumcision and obeying this law and this law and this law. But, but, that, but that doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. We don't have to supplement with this thing and that thing and that thing. It says Christ unites us. The scripture says that Christ's work on the cross grants us all the same spirit that enables us to come to the same Father. And that the good news brings peace to both Jew and Gentile. And so in this scripture, I appreciate his singling out of the Jews also. He's not just speaking to the Gentiles so that we can um, know what it means to be his people. He's speaking to the Jews when he's talking about bringing peace to that so that they stop thinking that kind of thing. So they stop having this ethnic Gnosticism. Reconciliation and unity to both and for both. And there are no caveats after that. I really appreciate Paul including that in his, in his writing. And he finishes with, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. And so I'll just conclude with this. And to wrap it up in a, you know, quickly, this is sufficient for us when we're dealing with these issues that are volatile and in our face. This is enough, and this is what we should identify with, and this is what we should go to war with. We don't need to be pulled in other directions and be told that you know, this narrative is what you should adopt, and this thing is what you should know, and this is what you need to believe and expose yourself to. If you ever want to know, if you can ever have a hope to know, you'll never actually know, but if you ever want to have a hope to know, you need to, you know, expose yourself to this, this, and that. We use Scripture to critique everything else, and we don't allow everything else to critique Scripture. And we allow Christ's uh, work to have meaning and power um, and we go to war with that. And we don't, we don't get trapped into the other, the other you know, techniques and uh, narratives. We don't, we don't even allow that. We don't entertain it. <clears throat> Reconciliation, unity, recognizing disparity, and, and ridding ourselves of it is not something we have to achieve. It's already been given to us. It's not something we have to achieve. It's something that we have to believe, and it's something that we have to live. It's not something... It, it is something that we already have. Sorry. <laughs> it's already been given to us. It's done. It's real. It's, 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 it's already been achieved. We just have to be secure in it, and we have to go to war with Christ on our side. I was thinking about marriage. You don't become remarried. I don't even know what that sound was. I was thinking about marriage. You don't, <laughs> you don't become remarried when, when you're going through challenging times, right? You don't become remarried. You've already taken your vow, okay? You are already united in that. You don't have to get remarried. You brush up on what you, you know, made commitments to and, you know, you, you polish yourself and you, you do what you need to do, but you don't, 
you don't like have to go get remarried. It's, it's already been done. Like live in it now. Live in it. Real disparity exists when we don't take our blessing in Christ that he gives us, our eternal blessing, granted and given to us by God. Real disparity exists when we don't take that seriously and we don't allow it to have power in our lives and, and power in combating what we're faced with. Don't sacrifice that blessing thinking you need something supplemental. Don't let woke, woke culture woke culture speak into the church. The church should be the one speaking into culture and providing something meaningful and uh, hopeful and lasting. Respond to disparity by responding to the blessings that we already have, that we've already received, that we've already been granted, the blessing of Christ and what he's achieved. Allow that to speak into our relationships with people. Are we faithful to that truth? These aren't my questions, in case you're wondering, Colin. Are we faithful to that truth? Are we reflecting that truth into the world, into the culture? Are we living that truth in our thoughts, even in our thoughts, and in our actions, and in our emotions? Do we walk in that reality? Do we offer it the same way that it was offered to us? Now, here are my questions for you guys to, to, to discuss in cell group. How are we getting this message out there? In a time like this, volatile, right? We can all agree. And I'm not saying for the record that it's not bad or sad or that your heart shouldn't hurt for what's going on for this guy, George Floyd, or you know, the, any, any number of those cases. Um, I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel like you shouldn't have heartache over that. But what are we putting out there? How are we getting this message of Christ out there? Are we faithful and informed on what Scripture has to say when issues come up? Third, just take time to reflect on the last week, those of you that are news privy, okay? If you're younger in your cell groups or something, ask an adult what's been going on, and they can give you the spark notes of it. But reflect on the last week. Where have you been led mentally, emotionally, spiritually, in the light of these things going on, in light of these things going on? How are you process, processing these things with what Scripture teaches and using that as your filter? How have you cheapened Christ by supplementing him or by opening up the door for that supplement? Yeah, how are you cheapening Christ's work? How are you cheapening the power of God's word by allowing for supplements to... Um, go with that, to go with your thought processes, your actions, and your emotions. <clears throat> How are you reaching out to those who are alienated and living in hopelessness? What are you providing them when their search for answers remains futile? Because they will continue to. And last, is the blessing of Christ and what he offers enough for you? Is it sufficient or does disparity have authority in controlling your narrative? We should talk. Thanks, and uh, see you next time in two months, I think it is. Thanks, guys.